Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of pregnant women with cancer with Dr. Mariah Rosenblatt and Katherine Kraschel. Katherine Kraschel is a clinical lecturer and research scholar at Yale Law School, and Dr. Rosenblatt is assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Jagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So um, maybe, Dr. Rosenblatt, we can start with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? I am a breast oncologist. I treat women with breast cancer, and I'm a medical oncologist, so I mainly um, treat women with chemotherapy and endocrine therapy. And tell us, uh, Ms. Crashell, a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I am the executive director of the Solomon Center, which means that I work on a various health law, health policy-related um, issues for the center's programming. Um, and I also co-teach a reproductive justice clinic, which means that I work uh, with law students on real-time issues in the reproductive justice space and oversee their work um, in collaboration often with some of the national organizations concerned with reproductive justice and reproductive rights. So, Dr. Rosenblatt, maybe we'll we'll start with you. You know, today's show is all about people getting cancer while pregnant. I mean, as a medical oncologist, how common is that to begin with? And can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? I mean, I can only imagine that you're um, pleased and happy that you're pregnant. I mean, how often do you get this news that you have cancer how is that found and what must that be like? So thankfully, this seems to be a pretty um, rare event. Uh, we think it happens in about 15 women out of 100,000 women who are pregnant. Um, so pretty rare. Um, it is more common in younger women. Um, so women younger than 30 is when we usually do see it. Most patients who come to us um, end up feeling a mass themselves um, kind of accidentally um, and then are present either to their primary care doctor or to a breast surgeon and we're able to work it up further. Um, as you can imagine, this is a very stressful event for these women who, like you described, are so excited um, to be pregnant um, and are so devastated to find this mass and find out that they have breast cancer. Um, the other case where we sometimes see this is when women are already diagnosed with breast cancer and kind of undergoing the workup before starting treatment um, and accidentally find out that they're pregnant um, and, of course, have much more complex emotions in that situation. And is breast cancer the most common cancer that's found during pregnancy? Breast cancer often is the most um, common cancer found during pregnancy, and we think this has to do with the hormonal changes that happen during pregnancy. Um, most breast cancers are driven by hormones like estrogen, which are very high during pregnancy. And so, you know, Ms. Crashel, maybe you can jump in here, you know, tell us about how this intersects with the law. I mean, I can imagine that uh, certainly there are 
a, a number of complexities that occur for women um, in terms of their medical care. But um, talk a little bit more about reproductive justice and, and what you meant by that, especially in this context of uh, cancer in pregnancy. Sure. Um, so I guess just very briefly, when, when we say reproductive justice, it actually means something fairly specific. Um, reproductive justice specifically is a movement uh, founded by and led largely by Black women um, who were not always, their concerns were not always central uh, in the reproductive rights movement um, that we've seen um, in earlier decades. Um, so to say that I work on reproductive justice work and reproductive rights, um, reproductive justice in particular sort of centers the most uh, marginalized uh, people in thinking about their ability to exercise their reproductive autonomy, whether that's the ability to get and stay pregnant and have a healthy pregnancy, the ability to terminate a pregnancy when that's what they um, would like, and the ability to have a healthy experience giving birth and have a healthy and safe environment in which they are able to raise their child. Um, so that's what I, I mean when I say reproductive justice. As far as how reproductive justice and the legal landscape affect discussions of oncology care, I guess the first thing I, I would say today is that, you know, I should not be on a uh, program concerned with issues and a discussion of a particular way to care for a particular patient that is faced with a uh, cancer diagnosis. We do not, we should not want attorneys uh, to be involved in the intimate decision making that happens between a patient um, that has been diagnosed with uh, cancer or that has, you know, has cancer and finds out that they are pregnant. Um, you know, I think it, from a reproductive justice perspective, um, that's not the goal. Um, clearly, I understand uh, why I am part of the conversation, but in a, you know, in a reproductive justice world, um, I wouldn't be. That these, these discussions would appropriately be left to physicians and their patients facing difficult decisions. Um, in the current moment, part of why it's important to think about these issues is because as many people know, the Supreme Court struck down the 50-year precedent that upheld a right to access abortion um, as protected under the U.S. Constitution at a federal level. Since that case came down called Dobbs v. Jackson's Women Health Organization back in June, um, states have enacted or some states had laws already on the books or some states um, had laws on the books that specifically said if Roe fell, they would go into effect that have severely restricted a pregnant person's ability to choose to terminate their pregnancy. So in some states, thankfully not in the state of Connecticut, which I'm happy to talk more specifically about, um, but in some states where abortion restrictions have become total bans or, you know, or very early gestational age, such as six weeks post uh, uh, six weeks gestation, uh, patients would not be able to legally access pregnancy termination in those states, um, even if clinically um, would be a choice that a physician would want to present to their patient um, and give them the information to make an informed decision about their care moving forward. 
so Dr. Rosenblatt, maybe we can pick up the conversation there. I mean, I can you you at the beginning of this conversation kind of painted two scenarios. One where a patient was already pregnant, very happy to be pregnant, um, and found a lump in her breast, was diagnosed with breast cancer. The second is where she was diagnosed with breast cancer and um, through a series of tests then realizes that she's pregnant. Um, talk a little bit about how both of those situations are managed and you know what options patients do have and what are kind of the thought processes that go into making decisions about care in those two circumstances. So in both situations, this is a very challenging situation because we really have to take into account the welfare of, of the mom and the fetus. Um, the number one thing I tell patients is that I'm really there to support them, really either decision that, that they make. It's a very personal decision, and I'm there to support whatever they decide. From the cancer standpoint, um, we now have a lot of therapies that we can do safely during pregnancy. Um, and so from the cancer standpoint, whether they choose to keep the pregnancy or not, we can get we can get them through the cancer treatment and they will most likely have the same outcome um, regardless of whether they choose to keep the pregnancy or not. So that's one of the first things that I tell them, um, really that cancer aside, they should just make a personal decision of whether they want to keep the pregnancy or not. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the thought processes that are going through patients' minds when they're trying to contemplate that? I mean, because if you say to a patient, you know, we can get you through treatment, um, you can keep your pregnancy, um, your outcomes will be the same. Do many patients contemplate um, uh, aborting at that point? Or does it really depend on the stage of pregnancy at which they're diagnosed? Or is that a difficult uh, kind of question for uh, some to contemplate? Um, I mean, I can imagine that it's a pretty complex topic. Yeah, it's a very complex decision for them to make. Um, from the oncologist standpoint, um, a lot of the counseling that I can help with um, is about what stage the cancer is. Um, so if it's a, a smaller stage cancer, um, if it's a smaller size tumor, um, if there are fewer lymph nodes found, um, we're a little bit less concerned. Um, and also regarding what type of breast cancer it is. Um, we do know that cancers that are diagnosed during pregnancy tend to be more aggressive. Um, and so we think that that has to do with the hormones involved in pregnancy. Um, and so we do talk about how most of these cancers, even if they're on the smaller side, um, most likely will end up needing chemotherapy. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made regarding surgery as well. So we know that surgery for breast cancer is often safe. Um, at the end of the first trimester, um, usually eight to 12 weeks of gestation is, is a safe time to do it. Um, and we know that chemotherapy is safe starting in the second trimester, but other treatment options like radiation and other things like endocrine therapy, some of the targeted therapies that we have for breast cancer have to wait until after delivery. Um, so that factors into the decision. Um, 
I think also in, in terms of whether this was a planned pregnancy or not, you know, how much the pregnancy is desired, where the woman is in, in terms of childbearing. Um, we've had some patients who tried for years with IVF to have a pregnancy and were not successful and then ended up um, accidentally finding out that they were pregnant during a breast cancer diagnosis. And that ended up being a very much wanted pregnancy, even though it was not planned. Um, and there are other women that are very early in their breast cancer diagnosis and very early in their pregnancy. Um, and it's not a desired pregnancy. And we are, you know, fully supportive of them deciding to abort that pregnancy um, if that's what they wish to do. And so, Ms. Crashel, you know, when when Dr. Rosenblatt talks about being very supportive of patients and their decisions, um, that certainly seems like a very empathetic uh, uh, physician approach. But when you talk about some of the states that have imposed complete bans, is there no exception um, for uh, the idea that, you know, if you were diagnosed with a, an advanced cancer in your first trimester and you have, uh, you know, uh, need chemotherapy, but chemotherapy isn't safe until your second trimester. And so you are putting this fetus at risk of cardiac uh, abnormalities and so on and so forth. Is there any consideration um, with regards to those issues? And maybe um, what we'll do is, because I know that that's likely going to be a, a long and complicated answer, we'll take a short break uh, and let you ponder that and let our, our audience think about what, uh, what you might say right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about pregnancy and cancer with my guests, Dr. Rosenblatt and Ms. Crashel. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their Center for Gastrointestinal Cancers provides patients with a comprehensive, multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of GI cancers. SmiloCancerHospital.org The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Mariah Rosenblatt and Katherine Crashel. And we're talking about the care of pregnant women with cancer. Now, for those of you who missed uh, the first half of the show, you know, we've talked about pregnancy and cancer on Yale Cancer Answers before. What's interesting, however, now is that we have a legal perspective. And um, 
Katie, as you mentioned before the break, it really is tragic that we need to have an attorney on this show, although we love to have you here, to really talk about um, the legal ramifications and the legal rights of women who develop cancer during pregnancy. Mariah had mentioned that she's always very supportive of her patients' uh, decisions as to whether they want to carry on the pregnancy or not. And so the question that I posed right before the break was this. For some women, um, you know, they may be diagnosed with a very advanced cancer, perhaps even a metastatic cancer where it has spread all over their body, um, even in early stages of pregnancy. We know that these women will require chemotherapy, that their prognosis may be poor. And we know that chemotherapy is really not safe until the second trimester. In states that have now instituted a complete ban on abortion, um, what are these patients' rights? I mean, how do they make that decision? Do they have any recourse? Does the law have any loopholes that they can take advantage of? Um, sure. So as I mentioned um, in the first half of the show, uh, you know, what happened in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe was that there's no longer a federal floor that says what states aren't allowed to do, that states aren't allowed to pass abortion bans. It So what has happened is that there are different laws about abortion in different states. And so if you've seen one state's abortion ban or one state's abortion restriction, you've seen one state's abortion ban or one state's abortion restriction. So there's no one answer to the question, particularly thinking about what a life exception or a health of the pregnant person exception to an abortion restriction means. In one state, it could be interpreted to, to consider uh, a, an aggressive cancer diagnosis as a uh, justification for a pregnancy termination that would otherwise be illegal, but for an exception for the health of the pregnant person. Um, those questions um, in states where there is some sort of exception about what constitutes uh, something that's life-threatening or um, something uh, that's a severe would jeopardize severely jeopardize the life of a pregnant person um, are murky in some cases. And I think we'll probably um, be where we see a fair amount of very unfortunate cases moving forward um, in order to determine exactly what the scope of those um, exceptions are. The other thing um, that you mentioned astute, very astutely so in the first half of the show towards, towards the end um, was, you know, thinking about what this would mean for a fetus um, and the fetal development. And uh, to the extent these laws don't provide any exception for pregnancy termina uh, termination in the event of something like an oncology diagnosis or a cancer diagnosis, um, it's sort of shed some light on what these laws are really operating to do and to the extent, you know, abortion restrictions are put in place with the proffered justification of the best interest of the fetus, the developing fetus, um, it really begs the question of how um, true or how sort of pure of a justification that is if in fact there's no consideration for how treating or, or balancing um the 
the issues of treating a pregnant person to help with their um, cancer treatment and help keep them healthy as a pregnant person um, and balancing the effects of that treatment on a developing fetus. Um, so the last thing that I, I would also say that you pointed out um, is that, you know, when we think about reproductive justice in particular, sort of the calculus of the prospect of proceeding with a pregnancy while undergoing um, very life disruptive, important and, you know, critical care, but to, to go through that um, while pregnant or while um, trying to care for a newborn um, is a much different calculus depending upon the social supports that people have in place. Um, so again, if we think from a reproductive justice lens of sort of centering um, the most vulnerable or the most mar historically marginalized populations, if we're thinking about someone who does, who's, you know, perhaps a Medicaid um, patient um, and, you know, it doesn't have good disability leave or um, support systems to help care for them or help care for their, you know, resulting child, that calculus of whether to continue with a pregnancy feels quite different. Um, you know, and as, as also as we think of the cost of cancer care and the financial toxicity that can sometimes accompany it, um, the prospect of then also, you know, starting to incur the cost of um, parenting, you know, that may be significant even for the, you know, the patient that comes in that's pregnant, that's very happy about it um, and then is facing this uh, cancer diagnosis and what that means for their financial life, for their um, ability to care for their child with this sort of lack of, you know, many pieces of the social safety net that those of us who do reproductive justice work would also want in place to help that person uh, be able to maintain their own health while caring for their existing children as well as the child that may result from their pregnancy. But it seems like there are some states whose laws are so restrictive, um, and I, I certainly don't know the ins and outs of every state's laws, um, but at least what we've seen in the lay press about some states and the incredibly restrictive laws that they have put in place would not seem to really care about um, those uh, issues of equity and justice and financial toxicity and social support, let alone um, facing a cancer diagnosis. Yes. And I'm sorry if I didn't make that explicit, if I'm a fish swimming in the water and so I don't see it anymore and didn't describe it. Um, but yes, that is exactly, you know, precisely the type of point that um, I was trying to make. Thanks for helping me get there. Um, that these abortion restrictions don't consider those things and particularly those without any exception for the health of the pregnant person um, are the, just these draconian restrictions that leave these patients in very dire um, circumstances sometimes. And so, Mariah, you know, coming back to being a provider, I mean, you have the good fortune of practicing in Connecticut where we don't have these draconian laws yet, knock on wood. Um, can you talk a little bit about either what you've heard from colleagues in other states or what you think it might be like to try to practice medicine in this context in states that do have such draconian laws? Yes, I am so grateful to practice in Connecticut and not have to address this issue. I would imagine that it's unbelievably complex. Um, 
as a provider, our number one goal is to do what's best for our patient. Um, and medically wise, just as you brought up with large breast cancers or metastatic breast cancers, um, there are targeted treatments like HER2 positive treatments or immunotherapy um, that we can't give because they harm the fetus during pregnancy. Um, and if the woman chooses to have an abortion um, and it's not a desired pregnancy, it's, it's really hard as a medical provider to not be able to support that choice, um, especially when we know from the oncology standpoint that it it is harmful for that woman to wait and to delay treatment um, for those aggressive cancers. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine being put in that tough situation where you feel like you're not um, able to do what is medically necessary and um, also what's morally right for the patient. And so, Katie, back to you. What are the possible avenues for physicians in states that do have those draconian laws? I mean, what we've heard in the lay press is that, uh, and please um, enlighten us on this, that there may even be repercussions for physicians who try to help their patients. And so, so are there avenues for physicians who are placed in that circumstance to help patients, or do they have to just kind of sit idly by? I mean, can they refer patients out of state? How, how does this all work? I mean, how are we supposed to navigate um, this new landscape? Sure. So, yes, there are. So I guess I would say broadly that there's sort of a couple of different ways to think about this. Um, one is a physician in a state with a restrictive law that wants to counsel their patient on options or refer them for care they aren't able to provide um, to a state where abortion is allowed. Um, so that's sort of one scenario. And then I'll touch briefly on sort of the, the physician who's out of state who wants to treat a patient from another state. Um, so in that scenario where there's a physician with a patient in front of them that are residents of a state, uh, the, a restrictive state in the state where abortion is restricted, um, they may have limited options. Again, if you've seen one abortion restriction, you've seen one abortion restriction. Um, so there are some states that have tried to, like, for example, SBA, the law that was enacted in Texas even before um, the Dobbs decision came down that seeks to punish people who aid or facilitate someone seeking an abortion that's restricted um, in the state. So the questions is sort of still an open one about what the consequences are for a physician who would refer out or counsel their patients about the options. Would they be one of the people that's, you know, helping that person access abortion, even if they ultimately access the abortion in a state where it's legal? Lots of these questions about helping someone and sort of the ability of a state to apply their law to people traveling to seek abortion outside of the state's uh, legal boundaries are uh, very important and pressing legal issues that we'll probably see play out in the federal courts in the coming years. Um, so hand in hand with that is thinking about if you're, for example, a Connecticut provider, there's a, uh, a abortion provider, a oncologist in Texas um, can't, you know, 
provides the cancer diagnosis. Um, the patient has a cousin in Connecticut and wants to seek an abortion um, here in our state. And so the patient travels to Connecticut, seeks uh, an abortion from a Connecticut licensed provider, care that's completely legal um, in the state of Connecticut. And what is the legal liability of those Connecticut providers providing abortion care in our state where it's lawful? Um, the Connecticut legislature put a law in place that is uh, sort of belt and suspenders to help protect those providers. Um, so to the extent, you know, we're also thinking about abortion providers providing care to people traveling um, in that instance, um, abortion providers in Connecticut um, are standing on pretty sound legal protection uh, in providing that care to traveling patients. Catherine Crashel is a clinical lecturer and research scholar at Yale Law School, and Dr. Mariah Rosenblatt is assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.